In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the last Sunday of the season of Epiphany. We have spent these many weeks considering and meditating upon God revealing himself to us and what our response is in that revelation. When God shows himself to us, how is it that we should respond? We are ending with this uh, Feast of the Transfiguration, which is a tale of two mountains, Sinai and Tabor. The first mountain, Sinai, you'll remember, we read here in Exodus chapter 34, occurs just after the nation of Israel has left Egypt. You remember that through the prophet Moses, the Lord rescues the people from slavery in Egypt. He brings them up out and he brings them into the wilderness. And the first place they go in that wilderness is to the Sinai Peninsula, which is that small bit of land just on the other side of Egypt and the Red Sea. They cross into that small peninsula, they go to the bottom of it, and at the bottom of that peninsula is a mountain named Sinai. And on the Mount Sinai, you'll remember, Moses goes up after they leave, and the Lord gives him the Ten Commandments. He gives him uh, the law of God. And you'll remember that when Moses comes down the mountain, then he sees the people of God who had been waiting for him, and in their impatience, they turn back into idolatry, and they're worshiping the golden calf. Moses, in his anger, destroys the tablets. And we have this back and forth between Moses and God about um, forgiveness and about transformation and about how it is that God would respond to us in our foolishness. And so uh, the Lord restores his promise of covenant, and he sends Moses back up onto the mountain. This time it seems even more dramatic when Moses goes up the mountain. You'll remember that this cloud descends upon the mountain, that the mountain itself trembles, and that the Lord makes it a tabernacle of his dwelling place. Moses, he says, goes into the cloud. He goes into this place of dwelling with God. And so we see Moses and God dwelling together. Heaven descends and Moses ascends, and we see heaven and earth knit together in this fellowship where God speaks face to face with Moses. He on the mountain again gives Moses the law, but he gives him more than the law. He shows the people of God how it is that they're supposed to worship. You remember that on the mountain, the Lord reveals to Moses the tabernacle worship. He gives him all the rules for worship, how they're supposed to clothe themselves, when they're supposed to sit, when they're supposed to stand, how it is that they're supposed to respond to the Lord in worship. He gives him all of the the covenants and the ways that they're supposed to worship in the tabernacle. He again gives him the law. He explains and fully explicates the Ten Commandments and summarizes the love of God and the love of neighbor. He gives him the feasts, the three major feasts of worship. He explains how they're supposed to keep the Passover feast, how this is the celebration of God's covenant of salvation to bring the people out of uh, sin and darkness. He explains the feast of Pentecost, the 50th day where we celebrate the reception of the law. He gives them the feast of booths where they remember the dwelling that they have in the wilderness. And so with these three feasts and with the worship of the tabernacle and the law of the covenant, the Lord gives his testimony. He testifies to his love for his people. And that's what we read in Exodus 34. He says the two tablets of testimony. When we hear testimony, we think of a law court, don't we? We think of a witness going up onto the stand and saying, this is what I know. This is what I saw. 
God is sitting himself upon the witness stand and he is saying, this is what I know. I know that I love my people and that I would abide with them, I would dwell with them, and I would bring them into holiness. And we see this knitting together of heaven and earth, the unity of God and man, and the truth of his uh, love and holiness that he would have us abide with him in. This is what he reveals. And when Moses is speaking face to face with God and God is giving his testimony, he is witnessing to his love, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, this power of the Most High God is uh, shining upon Moses' face so much that Moses is transformed. His face is transformed and it glows still with this glory of God when he descends the mountain to speak with the people, when he goes out from this tabernacling, this dwelling with God. Moses himself has been transformed by God's love and by his message of purpose for his people. This is the background, this is the understanding that we have to have to go back up this other mountain with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, and Luke chapter 9. He goes up on Mount Tabor where there are still churches to this day celebrating the Feast of the Transfiguration, and we read that he goes up with them on the eighth day. Now that's an important number. You remember that Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days. That's straightforward enough, isn't it? That 40 days reminds us of Noah. It reminds us of the 40 years in the wilderness, of the 40 days of Christ out in the wilderness, these 40 days that Moses spends on the mountain. But those eight days, that's a a slightly different message and number, isn't it? That seems to be saying the seven days of creation, the seventh day of rest, plus one. So what would the eighth day be? You remember that Sunday, the Lord's Day, is the first day of the week, that Saturday is the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week. This is the day of rest. And so then we would go back to the first day. And yet the ancient fathers of the church say that Sunday, the day of resurrection, is the eighth day. It's a day of mystery. It's a day outside of time and space. It's a holy and miraculous day where the Lord is completing creation and recreating the whole world. He is making anew that which he made once before, and he is uh, restoring it and recreating it. And so that promise of resurrection is what we are uh, hinted at when we read that it's eight days later that Jesus tells these things to Peter, James, and John. That is, he's saying, this is resurrection time. This is resurrection talk that we're going to have. This is recreating the world talk that we're about to have. What is he counting after? Earlier in chapter 9 of Luke's gospel, there's the feeding of the 5,000. And you remember that after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus says to the apostles, Who do people say that I am? What is the response to these miracles? And you remember that they say, Well, some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're John the Baptist risen from the dead. And Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter's response is, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. Messiah means anointed. The one who is anointed and set apart to do the work of God. Because the promises of resurrection, the promise of recreating and restoring, are not a new promise. They're an ancient promise from the very beginning. And God's prophets have been saying, one is going to come and he is going to restore the world, this anointed one of God. 
And so when Peter says, you are the Christ, you're the anointed one, he's saying, you're the one who's coming to fulfill the promises of God that he has made to our people. He has promised to restore us. He's promised to renew us. He's promised to dwell with us. And you're the one who brings this promise. And Jesus' response to that is, yes, I am the Messiah, and I'm going to die and rise again. And you too, to participate in my death and resurrection, will have to die. Yay! We get to die too. Right? And so this is what Jesus has told them. Now, they don't understand resurrection, right? We barely understand resurrection. And many of the critics of the church will say, Oh, those ancient people in ancient times, they just thought resurrection was happening all the time. That was normal for them. Clearly not. Nobody in the ancient world said, oh yeah, he's going to resurrect. We see that all the time. That was not the response of the people. Resurrection was as radical then as it is now. There were no stories of resurrection. We don't hear about people resurrecting all the time in ancient works of literature, the, the pagan religions. This is as radical for the ancient world as it is for us, this idea of somebody rising from the dead and this new life to come. So Jesus has promised that I am going to die and resurrect. You are going to participate in my death and you too will have resurrection. And the apostles say, we've got no idea what you're talking about. Right? It's eight days later then that he takes them up the mountain and now he's revealing himself to them. It seems in a way very similar now to what we read in Exodus. The cloud descends upon the mountain, the voice of God appears, and we have this glory of God. We have this glorious light that's shining. A slight difference though. The light that shines on Moses is face to face. It is apart from Moses, right? God's face is here. Moses' face is here. And God shines upon Moses. The light that shines in Christ is within him. Do you see that difference? The light of Christ is within him. And we read where this light starts. It starts when Jesus goes up on the mountain to accomplish his purpose. What is his purpose there? To pray. If Christ needs time to set apart for prayer, how much more do we? He goes apart to pray, and in his prayer, the window of heaven is opened within his heart so that the glory of God is not shining from out onto his face, but shining within. And it grows so much that it illuminates his skin and his clothes and grows so much past his person that it reveals a larger window into heaven where we see Elijah and Moses, not dead, but alive in God, for he is a God of the living, and they are discussing with him what he will what? What he will accomplish in Jerusalem. They're talking with him about what he will accomplish. What is it that we read? About his accomplishment and his departure. Two departures, his departure in death and the departure in his ascension. Two accomplishments, the accomplishment of his resurrection and the accomplishment of his going to prepare a place for us. So they are discussing what he's going to accomplish and his departure. And as they discuss this, they are revealed in glory, and Peter's response is the response that we would expect from a first century Jew. It's a right response. 
St. Luke says he doesn't know what he's talking about, of course, because he doesn't understand resurrection, and he doesn't understand the coming of the Holy Spirit. But for a first century Jew to see God transformed and to see this heavenly light and glory upon the mountain, he says, oh, this is, this is Moses' time, this is Exodus' time, this is when we create the booths for dwelling, the tabernacling of God. So Peter's on the right track. He just doesn't know how far God is going to take this tabernacling. He thinks that this is about us getting into some tents and dwelling in a tent in the wilderness. What he doesn't understand is that we become the tents of God. We become the tents of God. We become the tabernacles of the Holy Spirit. He dwells with us in us and goes everywhere with us. That's the radical understanding that Peter doesn't yet have. And that the Father speaks and he gives us one first key to this understanding of God tabernacling with us. He says, this is my son, listen to him. Listen to him. Now, some people want to make a really big deal about saying, oh, it's about listening. Well, what does a parent mean when they say, listen to me? Do they mean just say, I understand what you're saying? No. They mean listen and obey and do. That's what parents mean, right? Listen to what I'm saying. That means understand, acknowledge, and do. This is the key to us becoming tabernacles. When we listen to God and we're, when we're willing to be obedient to his word. And obedience and listening to God is found and rooted in that second key, which is love. Because the act of Christ's accomplishment and departure is an act of love. We have to understand Christ's work upon the cross as the most dramatic, radical act of love we have ever seen or heard. This is a radical act of love. And St. Paul, in the very end of his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, has this most beautiful and famous passion that we read at weddings, and we read all this wonder about love and how wonderful it is. And I wonder how close, really, we read that, right? Because what is St. Paul saying in the middle of all this going back to love? He's saying, look... We are prone to envy, to boasting, to arrogance, to irritableness, to resentfulness, to rejoicing at the wrongdoing of others. Right? That's what is being acknowledged in love. The inner tyrant in all of us. The biggest problem that the world has with suffering and with the idea of a good God is that he's not a tyrant because people will say oh if God really was good he wouldn't let bad things happen in other words he'd be a tyrant that made everybody do what he wanted them to do right our answer to suffering in the world is well if I was in charge I would make people do this and I would make people do that I'd pass a law and I'd make them right our response to everything is to respond to the inner tyrant within us. And yet God's response is what? Love. It's crazy. Which does what? It's patient. 
It's kind. It's rejoicing. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. God's response, His antidote, is love. That is the key that unlocks the door of all suffering, of all loneliness, of all sorrow, of all despair. It even unlocks death and opens the gates so that we can participate in eternal life. Michael, that is great news for you and for us. Because God is going to place a seed of hope and love in your heart that will go with you wherever you go. Whatever you do, God will always be with you and he will always love you. Better than the people who are sitting next to you. Because God knows everything about you and he finds you good. And his love will always be in your heart. And if you listen and you're quiet... God will reveal his love to you. And when you respond to that love for your neighbor and for God, then you will be obedient, an obedient child of God. That is the hope for each of us. We don't manufacture it. We don't make it. We don't find it and sell it. It's given freely to us, and when we respond, that window of heaven is opened more and more in prayer until God's truth is revealed in us and in our families and in our homes and in our world this day and forevermore.